Section twenty one, part two of chapter three of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, book one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackston. Book one. Chapter Three, Part Two. William the Norman claimed to crown by virtue of a pretended grant from King Edward to confessor, a grant which, if real, was in itself utterly invalid, because it was made, as Harold well observed in his reply to William's demand, absque generali senatus et populi conventu et dicto which also very plainly implies that it then was generally understood that the king, with consent of the general council, might dispose of the crown and change the line of succession. William's title, however, was altogether as good as Harold's, he being a mere private subject and an utter stranger to the royal blood. Edgar Atheling's undoubted right was overwhelmed by the violence of the times, though frequently asserted by the English nobility after the conquest, till such time as he died without issue, but all their attempts proved unsuccessful, and only served the more firmly to establish the crown in the family which had newly acquired it. This conquest, then, by William of Normandy was, like that of Canute before, a forcible transfer of the crown of England into a new family. But, the crown being so transferred, all the inherent properties of the crown were with it transferred also. For, the victory obtained at Hastings not being a victory over the nation collectively, but only over the person of Harold, the only right that the conqueror could pretend to acquire thereby was the right to possess the crown of England not to alter the nature of the government. And therefore, as the English law still remained in force, he must necessarily take the crown subject to those laws, and with all its inherent properties, the first and principle of which was its descendability. Here, then, we must drop our race of Saxon kings, at least for a while, and derive our descent from William the Conqueror, as from a new stock, who acquired by right of war, such as it is, yet still the dernier resort of kings, a strong and undisputed title to the inheritable crown of England. Accordingly, it descended from him to his sons William the Second and Henry the First. Robert, it must be owned, his eldest son, was kept out of possession by the arts and violence of his brethren, who proceeded upon a notion which prevailed for some time in the law of descent, that when the eldest son was already provided for, as Robert was constituted Duke of Normandy by his father's will, in such a case the next brother was entitled to enjoy the rest of their father's inheritance. But, as he died without issue, Henry, at last, had a good title to the throne, whatever he might have at first. Stephen of Blois, who succeeded him, 
was indeed the grandson of the conqueror, by Adelisa his daughter, and claimed the throne by a feeble kind of hereditary right, not as being the nearest of the male line, but as the nearest male of the blood royal. The real right was in the Empress Matilda or Maud, the daughter of Henry I, the rule of succession being, where women are admitted at all, that the daughter of a son shall be preferred to the son of a daughter, so that Stephen was little better than a mere usurper, and the Empress Maud did not fail to assert her rights by the sword, which dispute was attended with various success, and ended at last in a compromise that Stephen should keep the crown, but that Henry the son of Maud should succeed him, as he afterwards accordingly did. Henry, the second of that name, was the undoubted heir of William the Conqueror, but he had also another connection in blood, which endeared him still further to the English. He was lineally descended from Edmund Ironside, the last of the Saxon race of hereditary kings. For Edward the outlaw, the son of Edmund Ironside, had, besides Edgar Atherling, who died without issue, a daughter Margaret, who was married to Malcolm, king of Scotland, and in her the Saxon hereditary rights resided. By Malcolm she had several children, and among the rest Matilda, the wife of Henry I, who by him had the Empress Maud, the mother of Henry II. Upon which account the Saxon line is in our histories frequently said to have been restored in his person, though in reality that right subsided in the sons of Malcolm by Queen Margaret, King Henry's best title being as heir to the conqueror. From Henry II the crown descended to his eldest son, Richard I, who, dying childless, the right vested in his nephew Arthur, the son of Geoffrey, his next brother. But John, the youngest son of King Henry, seized the throne, claiming, as appears from his charters, the crown by hereditary right. That is to say, he was next of kin to the deceased king, being his surviving brother, whereas Arthur was removed one degree further, being his brother's son, though by right of representation he stood in the place of his father Geoffrey. And however flimsy this title, and those of William Rufus and Stephen of Blois, may appear at this distance to us, after the law of descent has now been settled for so many centuries, they were sufficient to puzzle the understandings of our brave but unlettered ancestors. Nor, indeed, can we wonder at the number of partisans who espoused the pretensions of King John in particular, since even in the reign of his father, King Henry II, it was a point undetermined whether, even in common inheritances, the child of an elder brother should succeed to the land in right of representation, or the younger surviving brother in right of proximity of blood. Nor is it to this day decided in the collateral successions to the fields of the empire whether the order of the stocks or the proximity of degree shall take place. However, on the death of Arthur and his sister Eleanor without issue, 
a clear and indisputable title vested in Henry III, the son of John, and from him to Richard II, a succession of six generations. The crown descended in the true hereditary line. Under one of which race of princes, we find it declared in Parliament that the law of the crown of England is, and always hath been, that the children of the king of England, whether born in England or elsewhere, ought to bear the inheritance after the death of their ancestors. Which law, our sovereign lord the king, the prelates, earls, and barons, and other great men, together with all the commons in Parliament assembled, do approve and affirm for ever. Upon Richard II's resignation of the crown, he having no children, the right resulted to the issue of his grandfather, Edward III. That king had many children, besides his eldest, Edward the Black Prince of Wales, the father of Richard II. But, to avoid confusion, I shall only mention three. William, his second son, who died without issue, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, his third son, and John of Ghent, Duke of Lancaster, his fourth. By the rules of succession, therefore, the posterity of Lionel, Duke of Clarence, were entitled to the throne upon the resignation of King Richard, and had accordingly been declared by the king, many years before, the presumptive heirs of the crown, which declaration was also confirmed in Parliament. But Henry, Duke of Lancaster, the son of John of Ghent, having then a large army in the kingdom, the pretense of raising which was to recover his patrimony from the king, and to redress the grievances of the subject, it was impossible for any other title to be asserted with any safety, and he became king under the title of Henry the Fourth. But, as Sir Matthew Hale remarks, Though the people unjustly assisted Henry the Fourth in his usurpation of the crown, yet he was not admitted thereto until he had declared that he claimed, not as a conqueror, which he very much inclined to do, but as a successor, descended by right line of blood royal, as appears from the rules of Parliament in those times. And in order to this he set up a shoe of two titles, the one upon the pretense of being the first of the blood royal in the entire male line, whereas the Duke of Clarence left only one daughter Philippa, from which female branch, by marriage with Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, the House of York descended. The other, by reviving an exploited rumour, first propagated by John of Ghent, that Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, to whom Henry's mother was heiress, was in reality the elder brother of King Edward I, though his parents, on account of his personal deformity, had imposed him on the world for the younger, and therefore Henry would be entitled to the crown, either as a successor to Richard II, in case the entire male line was allowed a preference to the female, or, even prior to that unfortunate prince, if the crown could descend through a female, while an entire male line was existing. However, as in Edward III's time, we find the Parliament approving and affirming the right of the crown, 
as before stated, so in the reign of Henry the Fourth, they actually exerted their right of new settling the succession to the crown, and this was done by the statute seven, Henry the Fourth, chapter two, whereby it is enacted that the inheritance of the crown and realms of England and France and all other the king's dominions shall be set and remain in the person of our sovereign lord the king and in the heirs of his body issuing and prince henry is declared heir apparent to the crown to hold to him and the heirs of his body issuing with remains to lord thomas lord john and lord humphrey the king's sons and the heirs of their bodies respectively which is indeed nothing more than the law would have done before provided henry the fourth had been a rightful king it however serves to show that it was then generally understood that the king and parliament had a right to new model and regulate the succession to the crown and we may observe with what caution and delicacy the parliament then avoided declaring any sentiment of henry's original title however sir edward cook more than once expressly declares at that time of passing this act the right of the crown was in the descent from philippa daughter and heir of lionel duke of clarence nevertheless the crown descended regularly from henry the fourth to his son and grandson henry the fifth and sixth in the latter of whose reigns the house of york asserted their dormant title and after imbruing the kingdom in blood and confusion for seven years together, at last established it in the person of Edward the Fourth. At his accession to the throne, after a breach of the succession that continued for three descents, and above threescore years, the distinction of a king de jure and a king de facto began to be first taken, in order to indemnify such as had submitted to the late establishment, and to provide for the peace of the kingdom by confirming all honours conferred, and all acts done, by those who were now called the usurpers, not tending to the disherition of the rightful heir. In Statute One, Edward the Fourth, Chapter One, the three Henrys are styled, quote, Late kings of England, successively indeed, and not of right. End quote and in all the charters which i have met with of king edward whenever he has occasion to speak of any of the line of lancaster he calls them quote, nuper de facto et non de jure regis angliae end quote. edward fourth left two sons and a daughter the eldest of which sons king edward the fourth enjoyed a regal dignity for a very short time and was then disposed by Richard, his unnatural uncle, who immediately usurped the royal dignity, having previously insinuated to the populace a suspicion of bastardy in the children of Edward the Fourth, to make issue of some hereditary title, after which he is generally believed to have murdered his two nephews, upon whose death the right of the crown devolved to their sister Elizabeth. The tyrannical reign of King Richard III gave occasion to Henry, Earl of Richmond, to assert his title to the crown, a title the most remote and unaccountable that was ever set up, 
and which nothing could have given success to, but the universal detestation of the then usurper Richard. For, besides that, he claimed under a descent from John of Ghent, whose title was now exploded. The claim, such as it was, was through John Earl of Somerset, a bastard son, begotten by John of Ghent upon Catherine Swinford. It is true that, by an act of Parliament, 20 Richard II, this son was, with others, legitimated and made inheritable to all lands, offices, and dignities, as if he had been born in wedlock, but still, with an express reservation of the crown, quote, excepta dignitate regali, end quote. Notwithstanding all this, immediately after the battle of Bosworth Field, he assumed the regal dignity, the rights of the crown then being, as Sir Edward Cook expressly declares, in Elizabeth, eldest daughter of Edward the Fourth, and his position was established by Parliament, held the first year of his reign. In the act for which purpose, the Parliament seems to have copied the caution of their predecessors in the reign of Henry the Fourth, and therefore, as Lord Beacon, the historian of this reign, observed, carefully avoided any recognition of Henry the Seventh's rights, which indeed was not at all, and the king would not have it by way of new law or ordinance, whereby a right might seem to be created unconferred upon him, and therefore a middle way was rather chosen, by way, as the noble historian expresses it, of establishment, and that under covert and indifferent words, quote, that the inheritance of the crown should rest, remain, and abide in King Henry the Seventh, and the heirs of his body, end quote. thereby providing for the future, and at the same time acknowledging his present possession, but not determining either way whether that position was de jure or de facto merely. However, he soon after married Elizabeth of York, the undoubted heiress of the conqueror, and thereby gained, as Sir Edward Cook declares, by much his best title to the crown. Whereupon, the act made in his favour was so much disregarded that it never was printed in our statute-books. Henry the Eighth, the issue of the marriage, succeeded to the crown by clear indisputable hereditary right, and transmitted it to his three children in successive order. But in his reign we at several times find the Parliament busy in regulating the succession to the kingdom, and first, by statute 25, Henry VIII, chapter 12, which recites the mischiefs, which have and may ensue by disputed titles, because no perfect and substantial provision had been made by law concerning his succession, and then enacts that the crown shall be entailed to his majesty, and the sons or heirs males of his body, and in default of such sons to the lady Elizabeth, who is declared to be king's eldest issue female, in exclusion of the Lady Mary, on account of her supposed illegitimacy by the divorce of her mother Queen Catherine, and to the Lady Elizabeth's heirs of her body, and so on, from issue female to issue female, and the heirs of their bodies, by course 
of inheritance, according to their ages, as the crown of England has been accustomed and ought to go, in case where there be heirs female of the same, and in default of issue female, then to the king's right heirs for ever. This single statute is an ample proof of all the four positions we at first set out with. But, upon the king's divorce from Anne Boleyn, this statute was, with regard to the settlement of the crown, repealed by statute 28, Henry VIII, chapter 7, wherein the Lady Elizabeth is also, as well as the Lady Mary, bastardized, and the crown settled on the king's children by Queen Jane Seymour and his future wives, and, in defect of such children, then, with this remarkable remainder, to such persons as the king by letters patent, or last will and testament, should limit and appoint the same. A vast power, but notwithstanding, as it was regularly vested in him by the supreme legislative authority, it was therefore indisputably valid. But this power was never carried into execution, for, by statute 35, Henry VIII, chapter 1, the king's two daughters are legitimated again, and the crown is limited to Prince Edward by name, after that to the Lady Mary, and then to the Lady Elizabeth, and the heirs of their respective bodies, which succession took effect accordingly, being indeed no other than the usual course of the law, with regard to the descent of the crown. But lest there should remain any doubt in the minds of the people, through this jumble of acts for limiting the succession, by statute 1, Mary, part 2, chapter 1, Queen Mary's hereditary right to the throne is acknowledged and recognized in these words, quote, The crown of these realms is most lawfully, justly, and rightly descended, and come to the Queen's highness that now is, being the very true and undoubted heir and inheritrix thereof. And again, upon the Queen's marriage with Philip of Spain, in the statute which settles the preliminaries of that match, the hereditary right to the crown is thus asserted and declared, quote, as touching the right of the Queen's inheritance in the realm and dominions of England. The children, whether male or female, shall succeed in them, according to the known laws, statutes, and customs of the same. Which determination of the Parliament, that the succession shall continue in the usual course, seems tacitly to imply a power of new modelling and altering it, in case the legislature has thought proper. On Queen Elizabeth's accession, her right is recognized in still stronger terms than her sister's, the Parliament acknowledging, quote, that the Queen's Highness is, and in very deed, and of most mere right ought to be, by laws of God, and the laws of statutes of this realm, our most lawful and rightful servant, liege lady and queen, and that her Highness is rightly, lineally, and lawfully descended, and come of the blood royal, of this realm of England, in and to whose princely person, and to the heirs of her body, lawfully to be begotten, after her, the imperial crown and dignity of this realm doth belong. 
End quote. And in the same reign, by Statute 13, Elizabeth, Chapter 1, we find the right of Parliament to direct the succession of the crown asserted in the most explicit words. Quote, if any person shall hold, affirm, or maintain that the common laws of this realm, not altered by Parliament, ought not to direct the right of the crown of England, or that the Queen's Majesty, will and by the authority of Parliament, is not able to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to limit and bind the crown of this realm and the descent, limitation, inheritance, and government thereof, such person, so holding, affirming, or maintaining, shall during the life of the queen be guilty of high treason, and after her decease shall be guilty of misdemeanor, and forfeit his goods and chattels. End, End of section 21